Welcome to episode 12 of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast, talking with athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. Thanks for listening, and I'm your host, Ian Sharman, head coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. This episode, we're talking to Christy Ashwanden, who is a former lead science writer at 538 and a frequent contributor to the Washington Post, Scientific American, Wired, and Nature, and she writes the Test Gym column at Elemental. A finalist for the National Magazine Award, her writing has also appeared in the New York Times, Outside, Discover, Smithsonian, and O, the Oprah magazine. She was a high school state champion in the 1600 meter run, a national collegiate cycling champion, and an elite cross-country skier with Team Rusignol. Uh, she lives and occasionally still races in Western Colorado. So this show is all about recovery, and Christie's book, called Good To Go, looks into the science behind many normal and unusual ways to recover. So we discuss cold therapies and ice baths, including cryotherapy, hot therapies like saunas, Tom Brady's recovery pajamas, sports massage and compression boots, older Chinese modalities like acupuncture and cupping, different ways to relax, plus active recovery. And then we also discuss nutrition, supplements, and sleep. So we're trying to cover as much as we can there to really give a good overview. So welcome to the show, and here we go. Thank you for joining me, Christy. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, obviously the thing most people are likely to have heard uh, from you is about the book Good to Go. I certainly want to delve into that a lot. But uh, I also want to know a little bit more about your athletic background, because I think that's a big part of why you wanted to look into recovery and write a book about it. So uh, let us all know a little bit more about the kind of things that you've done in the past. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I've been a lifelong runner. I actually started off as a runner. I started running in high school, went on to run in college. Um, but it was interesting. During college, I got injured. I hurt my knee, ended up having uh, some minor surgery on it. But in the meantime, as I was doing rehab, I started cycling and really loved it. And so I ended up quitting the running team, joining the cycling team. And that sort of became my passion for quite a while for uh, during college and then a few years after I, I raced pretty seriously on a on a local team this was in boulder colorado which is as you've probably heard a very competitive area for cycling um, in the meantime i also learned to cross-country ski in college started doing that and so after i was done bike racing i actually transitioned to being a cross-country ski racer and did that at a pretty high level i was on a pro team uh, the rosignal team traveled all over the u.s and actually lived and raced in europe for a couple of years a couple of winters doing that as well i mean that sounds like such a fun lifestyle there and also <laughs> the fact that it's so many different sports i think a lot of yeah. people tend to get into one and get stuck with it. I, I can certainly appreciate that. I didn't even start running until I was 24, 25 and did a whole mm -hmm. load of other sports before that, although not to, at a particularly high level. But it's, it's a good background as well, just on a separate note, to, to do more than one thing. And uh, it allows you to find your passion a little bit better because you're not just starting in one thing and don't even know what the other things are like. Yeah, it's great. And I, one thing I really enjoy is just having that variety. And, you know, even with the running, I've done a lot of trail running. I live in Colorado, which has beautiful, wonderful mountains that are lovely for running in. So I've done a lot of that. I still like to jump into a road race here or there. Sometimes I really enjoy 5Ks. In fact, a couple of summers ago, this was actually while I was working on the book, I took a summer where I decided I'm just going to do as many 5K races as I can and see how, how, uh, fast I could get my time. And that was a fun thing to do too. Yeah. I mean, the challenge behind that is certainly uh, amazing and particularly coming from the background of so much skiing, that yeah. must be great for your engine for doing that. And uh, I suppose as well, as you've got through that professional career, uh, recovery became an even bigger and more obvious topic. And especially, I think you, you wrote in the book that you had quite a few injuries and sometimes you get a really good training yeah. period and then get ill. So mm -hmm. is that what got you thinking about it a little bit more uh, and, and wanting to, to write about it? Or was it a little bit more just seeing that there was maybe quite a lot of junk science in <laughs> many elements of the sporting world where people are just trying to sell a product? And so you, you thought about that a little bit more. And just to add to that question, to make it extra long, uh, I know you start the book off talking about doing an experiment with how beer affects yeah. uh, recovery and performance. So was that mainly just to see how that science would work or, or just you know, your general curiosity that got you into writing this book? 
Yeah, sure. That's a lot of questions. And I'll just it say is. it was it was all <laughs> of the above, actually. Um, and I'll, there's a couple of things I'll say about why I wrote the book. I mean, one is just that, you know, I'm getting older each year, as all of us are. Um, and one thing that every athlete will notice is that as you get older, recovery becomes quite a bit more important. It takes longer. It just becomes so much more essential. And it was interesting, as I was researching the book, I talked to a lot of professional athletes. And almost all of them that I spoke to who were, you know, mid-career or later, you know, who basically weren't 20-year-olds, right, all said to a one, you know, I wish I had taken uh, recovery more seriously when I was younger. And I think most athletes who have done this starting when they were young have noticed that when, when you are young, it's possible to sort of neglect recovery and it's not nearly as important, you know, when you're 20 years old as it is when you're 30 or 40 or even beyond. And so, you know, that was one part of my interest. But I'll say that, you know, another reason I was so interested in this, there's this saying among writers that you should write the book that you want to read. And this is the book that I wish I had had back in my 20s, you know, and I was overtraining all the time and in my 30s when I was running myself into the ground because I was trying to train like everyone else was. And it, it took me a very long time to realize and recognize that uh, one of my athletic gifts is that I get fit very fast, but it also means that I get overtrained very easily. And so I was overtraining and not really recognizing it at first, because instead of paying attention to my body and, and really mastering recovery, I was kind of looking around to see what everyone else was doing. And what I saw was that everyone was training as long and hard and frequently as they could. And so I thought that's what I needed to do. And so th this book is really, um, you know, something that I wish it's, it's a lot of stuff I wish I had known when I was younger that I learned sort of the hard way. And then the final thing I'll say on, along those lines that you sort of uh, hearken to in your question is that, yes, I, I think one thing, I, I've been retired as a serious athlete for about 10 years now. You know, I still... I guess you could call me a weekend warrior. I still get out there and do as much as I can when I can. I'm the kind of person who will never stop uh, doing outdoor adventures, whether it's trail running or skiing or cycling. Um, but one thing that I've noticed in the time that I retired is that recovery has really become commercialized and it's become something where there's just this huge array of products that are being marketed for this purpose. And, uh, you know, my day job is that I'm a science journalist. And so I'm, I'm trained to look at scientific evidence and read research papers and talk to researchers and all of this. And so I was really curious to know whether any of this stuff worked and whether, you know, this was just fancy marketing or whether the science really had advanced and the stuff that, you know, we didn't use, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago really had become essential from a scientific perspective. And so would you say that having looked at a lot of different things, and we'll talk about something because there's some normal and slightly quirkier as well recovery tactics that you, uh, you looked into in the book, but would you say that there's any good science behind wearables and, and other, um, technology-based stuff, so particularly where there's algorithms and similar that can really make a difference? Or, or do you think in some cases maybe that can just be a distract, uh, distracting element that stops people being able to tap into what their body's telling them? Yeah, I mean, it's a complex answer, I think, because, um, you know, these algorithms and data, look, I'm a data journalist, I, I spend a lot of time looking at numbers, and I think we can learn a lot from them. The danger here, though, is that I think we have a couple of things going on. One is that these companies and a lot of these wearables and, and this tracking, you know, these metrics that people can track, we have sort of an over-promising of what they can deliver and what they can tell you. And then the other thing that I think is really concerning is what ends up happening is you can have an over-reliance on them. And so you have situations where people are believing the smartwatch over what their body's telling them and how they're feeling. And this just reminds me of a really funny story. A friend of mine told me he's a college uh, track coach. And he said that one day uh, he was doing, his athletes were doing mile repeats on the track. And so they were, but they were crossing the finish line for the mile repeat. And instead of stopping, they were going a few steps beyond that. And he was sort of like, what's going on? And usually, you know, mile repeats are really 
difficult taxing workout. So anyone who's done them can say it usually, I mean, you're just wanting to collapse on the finish line. Well, in talking to his athletes, what ended up happening is they told him, well, their smartwatches weren't quite, you know, they had to, to go a few more steps before it was registering that it was the full mile. And so they were doing this entirely just so that their watch would would count and tell them they'd run a mile when you could look on the track and see what the distance they had gone and known that that was the case. And so, you know, it was a really, I think, a very explicit, um, you know, example of this where people are paying attention to the wrong things. And I think one of the questions you really need to ask when you're looking at these different data metrics are, what is the question I'm trying to answer? And is this number the best way to answer? And sometimes the answer is, well, it can be part of the answer. But, you know, when I was researching the book, I did not find a single you know, data metric like this that was the answer. And I think you have to be really careful, you know, when you have companies and people and products telling you that they have the answer, because the answer is usually not something that's you know on your tracking device and of course those devices are generally just tracking one thing like heart rate or heart rate variability or power or whatever it may be but it's not incorporating everything that's going into it it's just trying to use one thing and maybe extrapolate a bit too much from that and i suppose on top of that you've got the fact that uh, it may not measure it perfectly Uh, i'm sure everyone who's uh, used a a wrist-based heart rate uh, monitor has noticed that the numbers sometimes look a little bit off or very off in fact that's right and so uh, if you go purely by that data you could easily make a lot of mistakes and and the the example you just used, I knew exactly where that was going because I I'm very familiar with that idea <laughs> of I've done I've done mile repeats on the track and done the extra few steps to hit the the beak for the mile and I think uh, everyone can totally relate to that of where we we start measuring something even we know that the thing we're measuring is actually wrong because we have yeah. objective facts showing us that it is a wrong number but we still aim for that and still use that in some ways uh, to be more important. And I suppose a related thing to this, and it'd be interesting to get your thoughts about it, is now with social media and and, stripes, uh, and sites like Strava, do you think there's even more tendency to do that? Because now we're comparing to everyone and we're sharing exactly what we're doing rather than just doing it for ourselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I think what those social media sharing sites for athletic stuff has really done is it's, it's sort of turned sport into a performative act in a way that it wasn't before. I mean, look, we're all, you know, if you're a competitive athlete you're racing and that that's sort of you know race day that's your performance but now it's all about you know the, this performance you know these performative things of you know you, you have professional athletes who are posting on instagram of themselves doing all of these things and so much of it is really about um sort of showing off or cultivating this sense of, of what you're doing and i think that's really toxic i think that it's not helpful at all I, I agree. And I think that, you know, that's the, the thing about all social media, I suppose, yeah. overall. But also, I think there can be a positive side to that as long as you can put it in the right context. Uh, and yeah. again, that, that applies to so many things in life that you can take the good from it, but it's also easy to get caught up in things that might be um, not heading you towards the original aim. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I really like, uh, I do a lot of cycling in the in the summer and I'm not on Strava or anything like that. And I, you know, I'll I'll look at my performance sometimes and sometimes I'll even, you know, race myself a little bit. But I had this guy ask me last summer, two summers ago, he was saying, why aren't you on Strava? He really, and I couldn't understand why it was so important to him. And I finally realized that, you know, there's this climb around here that that all the cyclists do. And he really wanted to like compete against me at the time. And I'm sort of like, dude, you can't just pick a, a race with me. Like I'm not, that, I'm not playing that game, you know, I don't mind racing, but I want to do it then. And I don't, I don't really like the yeah, idea. And you have to that... be aware that you're actually in the race. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so let's talk about a few of the different recovery uh, modalities that you sure. looked into. Some of them definitely very quirky. Um, I think as people listen to this, they'll probably have attachments to some of them and think other yeah. ones are voodoo science. So uh, it'll be interesting to get your thoughts there. But uh, first of all, let, let's go with the uh, cryotherapy. And I'm going to bundle in ice baths with that because it's a similar kind of concept behind them, something to do with reducing inflammation typically. So what did you find with your experience of trying that out uh, and any kind of good reasons to do it? Or equally, uh, in that case, maybe reasons not to do it? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask about this one. I think that uh, cryotherapy, and you're right to sort of bundle all of these together, all of the cold therapies, you know, whether it's ice baths or the cryotherapy 
therapy tanks where you basically stand in this big metal drum and they they uh, you know release this liquid very cold liquid gas that that it basically feels like standing naked in a snowstorm. Um, but the idea behind this is that it's going to reduce inflammation and that it also, yeah, basically, if you think of it from a physiological perspective, what's happening is as you cool your body, it's shunting all the blood to your core. So you're actually reducing circulation to your extremities. And so say if you're a runner and you've just done a hard workout, your legs are sore and tired. The idea is that you're taking all the blood out of those muscles. Well, I think, you know, here it can even just be helpful to do a thought experiment and ask, you know, well, why why would this be helpful or why would we want to, you know, reduce blood flow to those areas? And that the answer that's usually given to this is, oh, well, you know, we, we want to reduce inflammation. Well, there's one problem with that, and that is that inflammation is actually part of your body's healing process. And the reason that, you know, doing a hard workout, lifting a weight, whatever it is that you're doing is improving you and in, in having these training effects, um, helping you to get fitter, faster, stronger, is that you're causing this little micro damage. You're, you're, body's basically repairing itself after that hard effort. And so by reducing inflammation, you're actually slowing the healing process. And you can, in fact, potentially, you know, reduce your benefits from training. And in fact, this has been shown in some studies. Now, I don't think that the effects are so terrible that it's like, oh, my God, if you do a, an ice bath, you know, that mile repeat workout you did was just garbage and won't, you know, you won't benefit from it. But it certainly is not boosting your benefits from the, the workouts and the training. Um, but then the other the other thing about this is just to think about, you know, why why would cold be good in the first place and you know really you want that blood circulation going and as soon as you get out of the cold you're you know your the blood goes back to those extremities so the whatever thing that you're doing is temporary and only lasting the duration of that treatment and so you know it ha would have to have a really large effect you know to even spend 20 minutes with less blood flow to that area i mean it just doesn't make sort of logical sense that that would be helpful in the first place could there be some kind of flushing process? I know this is a very unscientific term, but it's the kind of thing you might hear where it's reducing the blood flow, but then afterwards it gets it coming back in and, and there's something positive behind that. Or is that just uh, completely uh, made up rationale? Well, I mean, let's just think this through logically. So, you know, you imagine you have a garden hose and you shut it off and then you turn it back on and you're saying, well, I'm flushing the hose. Well, if you had had the hose going that whole time, you ha would have been flushing it that entire time. <laughs> so the idea that like somehow turning it off or reducing the flow, you know, turning the uh, the faucet way down, it, it's not really, it just doesn't even make logical sense, does it? No, no. I mean, that, that's why I said it's yeah. a non-scientific term. It's yeah. just a, trying to think of a reason why that might help. Yeah. But the one, the one uh, area with this that I can see there could be some benefit and it fits in with the idea of reducing the inflammation is if you're continuing to perform, like if you're in a multi-stage race, if you're um, doing you know, maybe it's a track meet and you have a, a race in the morning, a race in the afternoon, you're trying to reduce the inflammation in between those, uh, those races. Do you think it could be of use there? So even if it's reducing the adaptation and the recovery, it might be just reducing soreness and allowing better performance immediately, but with that kind of um, trade-off there? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked about that because it is true. Um, so the one the one area in which uh, cold cold therapy can can potentially be helpful is that so one thing is that it does um, it, it can be effective for pain reduction. So in other words, yeah, you know, like if you sprain your ankle and you ice it, that's not going to speed the healing, but it will help it feel better at that time because it's basically numbing it. And the same is true, you know, if your muscles are really, uh, you know, you're in the middle of say a track meet where you've done the prelims and now you're going to do the finals and you have to go perform again. Um, so it can be helpful. And the evidence does show that it can be useful in the short term for just feeling better and maybe improving uh, muscle pain or whatnot. But in terms of long-term adaptations and performance, it's not helpful. So really the only reason to do it is in a situation where you're going to have to perform again in very short order. And by short order, I mean in the, the the time frame of minutes to hours, not half a day or, or two days, or you know, if you're if you're not performing again until the next day, it's it's not going to be helpful. Interesting. I think that's a, that's a good nuance to it there because I've yeah. certainly heard it advised more for maybe multi-stage things. So mm -hmm. I don't know what they do in something like the Tour de France or in um, running races that are multi-stage, but it sounds like it probably wouldn't help that much uh, even with those if you've got a, a night to sleep in between. 
Yeah, I mean, look, our bodies are, are are adapted to to being active and to doing exercise, and they're very good at you know our bodies do recovery pretty well on their own. And so, one of the things that I really found in researching this stuff is that almost all of the stuff that's being marketed for recovery, the sort of most important thing that it does is it gives you something to do while you wait for your body to do what it needs to do to recover. Very few things. Uh, you know, really expedite things. But what they do is they give people a sense of empowerment, a sense of agency. And, you know, if that's important to you, if you feel like you'd rather be like rolling around on a foam roller than lying on the couch with your feet up, you know, if, if that makes you feel better, fine. You know, it's probably not really expediting your recovery. And would you say it falls into two camps there? One of them being this hurts, so it must be doing something. And the other one being this feels good, so it must be doing something. Yeah, yeah. I sort of, I have a whole chapter in the book about placebos. And I think, you know, it's really interesting. The research here is fascinating. It turns out that placebos that are that are unpleasant or that hurt are more effective than ones that, that are inert or that that feel good. And so that's kind of interesting. And then um, I've also found that, you know, there are a lot of, uh, of these placebo treatments that make people feel good. And I actually think that that's fine. Like one of the definitions of recovery is, you know, feeling better and being ready to perform again. And so if you're doing something that's helping you feel better, helping you feel relaxed, helping you unwind, then I think that by definition, that is working and it's legitimate. Exactly. I mean, it's difficult to tease out what might be a, a physiological benefit versus a psychological benefit. And, yeah. and both of them would be uh, have, have some validity. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, one, one of the things I noticed as I was researching the book is that very often science was being used as sort of a marketing ploy rather than, you know, an attempt, you know, science is wonderful because it's a really effective way of understanding the world and seeking truths, right? But so often with these products, science is really just being used as, I, I like to think of this as sort of science washing. So it's being used as a way to sort of give certain products, you know, some sort of sense of being bona fide and certified. And, you know, science has signed off on this. But so often the science that's being done on this stuff is not being done with the aim of understanding things, but with the, the aim of sort of legitimizing something that may not not be that legitimate. Yeah, instead of going at it with the angle of trying to disprove a theory, it's being paid for by the company to try and prove a theory. That's right. That's right. So we, we just talked about cold. How about hot with things like infrared saunas or even just any normal sauna as well? Yeah, it's it's so funny. Um, infrared saunas are basically just saunas that aren't quite as hot. And so it's, you know, they, they will tell you that it's a different kind of heat, which is technically true, but it's it's really not all that different. And in terms of benefits uh, to your body, I mean, look, heat is can be very pleasant feeling. So this goes back to my earlier point, you know, something that helps you relax and helps you feel good. I think that that we can say that that's working and that's useful for recovery. Um, you know, heat also facilitates blood flow. So it's sort of the opposite where cold was restricting blood flow and restricting the blood to, to your limbs and all of this. Heat will facilitate that. So it does increase blood flow. Now that said, you know, if you're an athlete and you're, you're fit and in shape, uh, blood flow, you know, circulation is not going to be your limiting factor. And so you can do something that will increase blood flow a little bit, but that's probably not going to be the thing that really changes how you recover. Um, that's not going to be the limiting factor. Um, there is this idea that, you know, you're when you're exercising hard, you're creating waste products at the side of your muscles and you want to get those out. Blood flow is the way to do that. And, and that's true. But you know, you're naturally going to have pretty good blood flow if you're a healthy athlete already. And so, you know, there are ways to increase blood flow with heat. Exercise is also another way, you know, so warming down is one way if you wanted to quote unquote flush these these byproducts out of your muscles. Um, but it's, it's not going to be, you know, increasing your blood flow is probably not the thing that's limiting you from feeling better the next day no it's uh, as we'd expect uh, i suppose with your description especially after talking about the ice side of things but also there'd be another effect here which is you're getting heat training so yeah, there's that's right. it's a totally separate thing so that might be making you fitter in a different way and, and there's certainly plenty of science looking into the 
purpose of heat training to help in running yeah. in the heat or exercising in the heat and, and the uh, things like additional uh, blood plasma that's created. So a totally separate element to it, but it's not related to recovery there. But uh, I suppose right. like, like the other one, if it feels good, then there's probably not really any harm to it. That's right. That's right. And I think I think there is some some, you know, using heat to help you heat adapt is a different is a different topic. And that is something mm-hmm. that I think is is useful, can be useful. Personally, I try to avoid exercising in the heat. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing that makes skiing so great is you don't you don't do that. Um, but if, if you're going to be performing in the heat, it is really important and crucial that you do some things to help yourself heat adapt so that, you know, you're not cobbled by heat stroke or something like like that and so that's a, an instance where heat can be a very useful tool and and the, where there's good science behind that as well where it's been yeah. looked at in the military it's been looked at for olympians and similar but that's a totally separate thing to, to just the recovery element yeah so uh, the next one i want to talk about is probably the the weirdest one in the book <laughs> and i'm guessing you know what i'm going to say next which is tom brady's pajamas oh my gosh so, yeah. uh, the the concept i suppose behind these is there's some kind of bio ceramic powder on the inside of them that reflects the heat back onto the body so I suppose that makes you hotter at night. And, and how, right. how is that a good thing? Because normally yeah. you're, being cold at night makes you sleep better. So right. is there right. anything behind that? Or is that totally a uh, marketing gimmick to, to sell something? Yeah, well, I, you're probably not surprised to learn that this is all a marketing gimmick. It's basically using fancy science terms to describe. I mean, look, they're, they're warm pajamas. And if warm pajamas are going to make you cozy and help you sleep better, by all means do them. They're also quite expensive. And so, you know, they're probably cheaper and just as cozy ways to, you know, p- you know, clothe yourselves in pajamas. If you like to wear pajamas to bed, you know, a lot of people, myself, I would feel too hot sleeping. Um, but yeah, there's nothing special about this. The, the term infrared is thrown around a lot. Um, if you took uh, high school physics, even, you know that infrared is just a type of, um, you know, light, a type of heat. Um, it's all around us. There's nothing particularly special about it. It's in a particular part of the spectrum. Um, but this idea that that having infrared pajamas is, is somehow better than than something else. It just it just doesn't pan out. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, a pretty quick one, I think, to dismiss there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So but the there are a lot one, of other oh, there, on, there are a lot of other products that that use this infrared. I mean, the infrared sauna is another example where I mean it is slightly different than a regular sauna. It's using a little bit different uh, wavelength of heat, but it's yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's still heat. It's not really that different. I talked to physiologists and physics for the book, and they all sort of told me, yeah. I mean. You look, if the infrared sauna feels good to you, you like it, it's a little bit less hot than a normal sauna, fine, do it. But if you are going to the infrared sauna because you think that infrared heat is somehow special and is going to magically, you know, facilitate recovery, I'm afraid you're in for disappointment. Kind of the concept of blinding us with science, just using some terms that sound more professional and more important. Yeah, and I mean, it works, you know, it's just like the term electrolytes, which, you know, the the sports beverage companies sort of invented. I mean, they didn't invent it. It's a scientific term, but it's really, you know, a way of, of making salts and other solutes sound really fancy and important and essential. Definitely. And, and I want to talk about food and drink in a minute, because there's obviously a, a whole load of things related to recovery with that. But also, there's a few other modalities I just want to go into first. So sure. I'm going to put these two together, even though I think they're quite separate in some ways. So compression boots and sports massage. Mm-hmm. So both things that can kind of feel nice, or in fact, frankly, the sports massage can feel quite uh, uh, hardcore and painful. So having that placebo effect of, of oh, that hurts, that must be doing something. Is, is there any um, any good evidence that they are actually helping recovery? And also... It's they're, they're very difficult things to do a scientific study around because you can't right. give people a double blind study. They know if they're getting massage or not, for example. Right. right. Yeah. It's very challenging. And I think, you know, we don't have good evidence from a physiological perspective that massage, and I, I think you're right to put the compression boots with them because it's basically a mechanized massage, right? And it's, yeah. you know, I think people go for it for the same reason. They want that sort of feeling on their muscles. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't have good evidence that there's some physiological thing going on. I mean, sometimes it's talked about like, you know, you're flushing 
byproducts from the mussels or things like that. There's really not good evidence for that. And again, you know, the, those things are done by our normal circulation. It is true that massage can maybe facilitate circulation a little bit, but again, this is not the limiting factor. It's like, you know, putting extra oxygen in the room and thinking that that you're going to perform better. You know, the, the limiting factor is not the, the oxygen you're breathing in. It's delivering that oxygen to the muscles and, you know, just putting more of it in the air isn't going to help. And I think, you know, increasing uh, circulation is the same thing. But that's not to say, you know, at the same time, even as we sort of are lacking for having hard physiological evidence that there's something, you know, important going on with massage. I mean, I I will say there are a few studies, I mentioned them in the book, that are sort of suggestive. So it is possible that, that, you know, the sort of mechanistic, um, you know, movement on the muscles may be um, turning on genes or somehow facilitating, uh, you know, some sort of, you know, things that are happening at the muscle level with different proteins being turned on and things like this. But uh, if these effects are real, they're pretty small, they're hard to hard to measure. But I think that, you know, even if we don't have this hard evidence that you might want from a scientific study, what we know is that massage makes people feel better. It's something that feels very pleasant to people. And this, again, I feel like a broken record, but it goes back to my earlier point, which is that anything that's helping you feel better, anything that's helping you relax can be really helpful. Now, a sports massage can help you relax. Sometimes it's, you know, a little bit the opposite of relaxing if it's if it's really intense. Um, but it also is something that I, I think there's sort of a more subtle benefit here that that may be hard to study in a scientific way. But one thing I think massage is very good at is helping athletes to sort of build a body awareness and check in with, oh, wow, I'm really mm-hmm. sore in that little part of my muscle. Or I didn't realize that, you know, I knew that my calf was sore, but I didn't realize that my Achilles is really, you know, sort of tender as well. And so it's, it's really about you know, helping you to observe and to feel what's going on with your body. And I think that that's incredibly beneficial and incredibly useful. I mean, I, I say in the book, I mean, one of the most important skills that any athlete can learn is an ability to read their own body and to really understand and feel what's going on and their state of recovery. I mean, you can look at all the sports watches in the world, measure all of these things, but at the end of the day, you know, being able to piece this all together and really understand how you're feeling and where your body's at is is a difficult skill, but it's one that's really important for athletes to learn. I completely agree. And I actually had it written down as a quote for exa- uh. almost exactly the wording that you just used <laughs> from the book, because it's almost exactly the wording I use on almost a daily basis uh-huh. when I'm talking with the people I'm coaching, which is, yeah, the, you're trying to develop uh, greater fitness, but you're also trying to, to get better at judging how your body's feeling, how you're recovering, how to right. adjust things in a workout, how to adjust things in a race. And so the more you can be in touch with your body, and I don't mean that in a hippie way, I mean yeah. that in literally listening to the signals, the uh, you know ele- electric signals and, and everything else about how your body is feeling um, is a key part of it. And ma- massage, I think, does have that benefit, but incredibly difficult to, to measure that and, and to quantify it. I suppose that one other element there related to massage that I've never really heard people trying to investigate scientifically, and I'm not sure how you could, but the idea of um, improving your biomechanics and your mobility. So often if you're tight, your your movement will be restricted in some way, and that could lead to an injury or at least some mm-hmm. kind of inefficiency and feel worse. So do you think that that would be a potential uh, I suppose it's still recovery, really. It's allowing you to get back to feeling good on the next training session. But uh, is that something that there's a- any evidence that you saw for it? Or does it sound like a reasonable concept there? Um, it's It sounds reasonable. It wasn't something that I investigated explicitly uh, for the book. Um, I did look into foam rolling, which I guess is sometimes used. You know, one of the things that's said about it is that it improves mobility and whatnot. And um, the evidence for foam rolling is is pretty slim, I would say. Um, there is There are some hints that it might be helpful, but what's interesting is that it seems as though it may be working not necessarily at the level of like doing something at the muscle, but in some sort of neurological way. And the reason I say that is um, I'm thinking in particular of some interesting studies that I reference in the book where they would actually you know, do foam rolling on one leg, and yet they would see benefits on both of them. So that sort of implies that it's something not going on you know, at the muscle itself, 
but maybe with the brain and the nervous system and, and you know, the, the interactions between the two that's, that's facilitating that change. No, that, that's a really fascinating point to it there. And, and I suppose I, I would put foam rolling in as sports massage light. That's, that's how mm-hmm. I kind of think about it. It's just not quite as deep and yeah. you're doing it to yourself. So especially to, to do cause pain to yourself is a little bit yeah, harder. Right. <laughs> so uh, it, it often helps to have someone who can be monitoring your body. And also the other benefit isn't just you getting to know your body better, but also if you're seeing the same person, then they have an idea of, oh, you're way tighter than you were last time. That race, I can yeah. tell you did it or be careful about this. It looks like it might affect uh, how you're going to move or something similar. But uh, I think it, it's, it, like you said, it's difficult to prove conclusively but if something feels good that alone is of use uh, and would you say a good a good uh, way to judge any type of recovery product or, or modality is if the it's a kind of a cost benefit basically if the cost is virtually zero including the monetary cost of it but yeah. the benefit is at least something or placebo then that's reasonable while if the cost is a lot like if it's a very expensive treatment and there's no real known benefit then uh, if you know, that's a reasonable way to look at it, that uh, low cost and potential benefits good, but if it's a high cost, it's got to have a high benefit to justify that. Yeah, I think that's a really good metric, you know, a really good way of looking at it. And yeah, I think that there are a lot of things that um, you you need to also really consider the time cost. So it's not just a matter of, Mm -hmm. you know, is it expensive, but is it sort of adding to your stress. One of the things that I noticed is that, you know, in in the process of turning recovery into this business and, and into this almost, it's almost like it's become a second workout where if you're not careful, your recovery routine can be its own so- source of stress and can be, you know, actually impeding your recovery process because instead of finishing the workout and, you know, going to lie down or take a nap or, or just relax, now you're doing all of these things and you're mashing yourself with the foam roller and you're doing this that and the other thing you're going to some facility to you know take the the special sauna or the do the cryotherapy and then you know it can really quickly become counterproductive oh especially if you psych yourself out because you don't fit in this thing that is essential in your mind for for being able to recover Yeah. And I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is stress. And by stress here, I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, like life stress, emotional stress, all of that. And that is sort of, you know, the antithesis of recovery. And it's something people really need to be mindful about. And so anything that's introducing more stress into your life is really cutting into your recovery. So, you know, anything you can do to reduce the stress in your life will, by its very nature, improve and enhance your recovery. Yeah, I, I always describe it to the people I coach as saying, you've got to think about things holistically. Yeah. Anything that physically or mentally causes you stress or fatigue is going to have an effect on your recovery and, and how well you can perform. So whether that's a long work day or whether that is a hard workout, the body still knows that as being something exhausting and it will need recovery from it. That's right. That's exactly right. So actually related to that, a couple of other things that you uh, part, you mentioned one of them in there, but not the others. So a, a sensory deprivation tank or a float tank. And then also I'm going to bundle this with other, um, actually, no, let, let's just talk about that one first. So so that that's totally about de-stressing. So I suppose yeah. the, the benefit there would mainly be just being able to relax and have a bit of time to yourself. But, but again, difficult to maybe scientifically prove uh, an increased speed of recovery or similar. Right, right. I think, you know, the benefit of the float tank is that it's a way of relaxing. I I ended up really enjoying this. I thought that I would hate it. I'm, I'm sort of a, a fidgeter. I'm not someone who's good at sitting still. And I thought, you know, locking myself in a, a a dark, uh, you know, tank with water. No, yes, they used to call these sensory deprivation tanks. Um, I didn't think it would appeal to me, but what I found was that it, it was very, very relaxing. It, it was sort of a way of forcing yourself to meditate, and you know, meditation can be a great way of reducing stress and sort of quieting the mind. Um, and you know, so this was great, but at the same time, it costs money. You have to go somewhere, so you have to sort of weigh those those things against one another. It's certainly not something that you could do on a daily basis. But I think the benefits really come from, you know, it is a way to, you know, engage in relaxation, which, you know, some people find hard. And I think that's- to switch off, to to not have your phone beeping at you the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I think it says something about our society that people have to try and relax now and schedule it into their day. I mean, it's, it's, I don't like what that says about us. No, but I think it's definitely the reality that we can all see. Yeah, absolutely. 
So how about some stuff? I, I don't think you really went into this in the book, but ideas like uh, acupuncture or traditional Chinese medicine or th- those kind of things where maybe they, they aren't as science-based, but uh, they've been used for you know hundreds or thousands of years. Did you really think about that? And it's also some of these things that athletes do use, particularly acupuncture or cupping or similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do mention cupping in the book. Um, it, that's kind of one of those that falls into this is ridiculous and really you shouldn't do it. I mean, what cupping's doing is giving you little bruises all over your body, which is, you know, it's said to improve blood flow. I think we've already talked about why that's sort of a silly claim or not something that you should necessarily be striving for. Um, but those bruises are really, you know, you're, you're getting little blood not clots, but you know, you're you're basically breaking little vessels, and and it's it's not helping you. It's in fact creating little injuries. And some people may find it pleasant. I have tried it. I found it not pleasant. I mean, I didn't find it totally unpleasant, but it was just not something that really spoke to me. People love it. They swear by it. Um, it is something I think where there it's really not, not just not helpful, but potentially slightly harmful, probably not going to really hurt you too much. Um, acupuncture, on the other hand, I didn't really mention in the book. I did look into it a little bit. There's not a lot of good evidence that it's helpful for recovery, but it does seem to be something that can help some people relax. And so there again, it goes back to, you know, if this is something that you find really relaxing, then it's probably not a bad method. You know, again, you have to ask, you know, is the cost and sort of time cost and and mm-hmm. the the stress of having to go somewhere and all that going to be worth it? And, you know, that's an individual decision. No, definitely. And, and I think with all of these, it's it's difficult to tease out um, the cause and effect. So sometimes yeah. maybe you see an Olympic swimmer and they go, they've had cupping, they've got these marks on their body, and then they win a gold. And is it that they win the gold because of that or despite that? Yeah, uh, and it's right. difficult to sometimes <laughs> yeah. be, be able to work that out. And also for anyone, if you did something before racing, you know, even things like wearing your lucky socks, right. uh, scientifically, there's no reason why those socks are going to make you quicker. But uh, if you associate them with being faster, then psychologically it might help. So it's, uh, it's difficult to, to be able to work out did it actually help or is it just because last time you did well afterwards, you now associate it with helping? Yeah, exactly. And I think this is an important point that you raise here. And that is, you know, our mindsets are so powerful here. And I think it's important that whatever things that you're doing for recovery, you're sort of setting this up so that you're not so fixated on something that, you know, let's say you're going to the race and you can't find that special something that you need. And now you're introducing a new source of stress because you don't have that. And how how are you going to make this work? How are you going to do the race if you don't have your special, you know, whatever it is? So I, I think it is worth being careful about these things. Definitely. And then the, the last thing I wanted to go into to do with different modalities that uh, I actually would recommend this on a regular basis. So it'd be interesting to see your thoughts is the concept of active recovery. So yeah. very low exercise, things like walking or a very light bike ride, just to to kind of get the, the legs moving, get the blood flowing a little bit, uh, get the, the, the way I've heard it described is getting the nutrients to the muscles to help them rebuild. Obviously, your blood flow is already doing that. Yeah. But uh, I think people would at least be able to notice how maybe a bit of soreness or stiffness often uh, is alleviated. So is there any good science for, for doing very low intensity stuff to help? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like like you just described. It is something that's helpful. It's not, you know, again, your blood flow is already probably pretty good, but it does feel good. You are increasing the blood flow with that easy activity, but you're also getting the muscles moving and contracting a little bit, and that can be helpful too, you know, if you are trying to remove these waste products and all of that. Yeah, the key here is just that it's low intensity, and it should be feeling good and not not hurting. And I suppose part of that would be low impact as well. So going for a run maybe doesn't fit in with that, but a bike ride where you don't have those impact forces or a swim would be more likely to fit in with that concept. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, So next, uh, food and drink. So uh, you mentioned a a minute ago about how uh, the industry itself kind of coined the, or didn't coin the phrase, but used the phrase electrolytes to make something sound more fancy and, and more useful. So are there any particular food or drink 
rules or types of things that you should have? Or is there just a lot of, of people trying to sell different products and make make out that it'll make a big difference? Yeah, that's right. It's it's the latter that you just said. <laughs> um, you know, electrolytes, that's just a, a scientific name for salts. You get these things in the foods that you eat. You know, bananas have a lot of potassium. Pretty much everything we eat has some sodium. You know, these electrolytes that we need, your body gets from your normal diet. You don't need them. There's this idea that, you know, if it's really hot, you need a lot more electrolytes. This doesn't seem to really be the case. Um, and so you really, you don't need to drink electrolytes in a drink. You can eat them, you know, you can finish your workout and drink a glass of water, have a salty pretzel or something like that. And you, you'll get these these things that you need. Your body also will, will keep hold on to them a little bit. So you don't need to have them. It's, it's not something that you need to be um, ingesting in every single moment of the day. Um, I think here, what we've done is really made this stuff much more complex and complicated than it really is. Um, yeah, you know, the re really basic rules would be, you know, eat to hunger, drink to thirst. And talking about hydration specifically, I think this is really important to understand that um, we have been told that, you know, we're, we're always at risk at dehydration and you have to be absolutely perfectly hydrated in order to perform during exercise. And, you know, after recovery, you certainly need to, you know, there are these um, bits of advice saying you should weigh yourself before a marathon, say, and then after the marathon, weigh yourself again and then drink whatever, you know, whatever that difference is, you need to drink that weight in water. Well, that's actually really dangerous advice. And it turns out, I mean, we have people now who are dying while performing marathons and other long distance events because they're over drinking and they're over hydrating. And so it's actually very dangerous to drink beyond thirst. Um, they can cause this very serious, potentially fatal medical condition called hyponatremia. And it's something that, you know, we really didn't see a lot of with exercise until we had the sports drink company coming in and, and telling everyone they needed to drink, drink, drink. And so it's really kind of a tragic situation. But the science on this is pretty clear. Drinking to thirst, you know, your body has this very sophisticated system for telling you and it needs to drink. It's called thirst. And this idea that, you know, if you wait until you're thirsty, it's too late is, is just nonsense. I mean, your body... Um, has a very sophisticated um, system of feedback loops um, that is able to sort of help you adjust physiologically as as you are losing fluids, because we do lose fluids through sweat and through respiration while we're exercising, but you don't have to replace all of that fluid in real time all the time. And I want to be really clear, I'm not saying you don't need to ever drink and that if you're in a marathon, you shouldn't drink or anything like that. What you need to do is sort of plan out, make sure that you have access to fluids when you might need them, when you might feel thirsty. Um, but you should never, you know, force yourself to be downing lots of fluids when you don't feel thirsty or, or when you're drinking that and it feels like you're forcing yourself. If that fluid and, and you know, those drinks aren't tasting good and, and doesn't feel like, ah, oh, this, this is great, that's your body saying, okay, I, I don't need it right now. And I've got a few little, uh, anecdotes to add to that so firstly 16 years ago when i was first getting into the sport um i was doing a race in the sahara desert called the marathon de sable and oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, they give you about nine liters of water a day so i'm not sure how many ounces that is but that's those big bottles times six yeah. so it's a lot of water and you're meant to use it for cooking and stuff as well but i basically thought i'm in the desert uh it's super hot uh, you know coming from england at the time this is a ridiculous heat so i can't possibly drink too much so i drank all of that on the first day. Second day, as soon as I got out, woke up, I then collapsed uh, and I put my backpack on. I was like a turtle on my back, just looking <sighs> up at the sun. And I had no idea that I just fainted. And then wow. two hours later, I fainted again while they were doing the pre-race briefing. <laughs> so, and that was purely from over drinking. Uh -huh. And then I, I scraped through that day, but uh, had to drop out the next day because I was feeling absolutely horrible. So uh, I got uh, a baptism uh, of fire with, uh, with hyponatremia. And, and I think it's good to point out to people that it, you're much less likely to be dehydrated and have issues with that than you are to be overhydrated, which is very easy to do. And like you said, people do die from that in races. Uh, and yeah. then, then related to that, I also want to add in uh, the example of Haile Gabriel Selassie. So mm -hmm. in the, uh, the training manual, um, The Law of Running, there's a whole load of stuff about hydration. But yeah. one of the things in there is that uh, 
people may have heard that if you're 2% dehydrated, you're, you lose 20% of performance. And that was a, a Gatorade uh, right. slogan, basically, which is based on nothing. Even when they look at the studies behind it, there's absolutely nothing that would give those exact numbers and, and what that would even mean in terms of body weight loss or anything else. But the, the key thing there was they looked at uh, uh, the body weight loss as a percentage of, of their body weight um, and found that it was correlated. The, the bigger that was, the nearer the front they were. Uh, and in particular, Gabriel Selassie, when he set the world record in the marathon, he would lose up to about 12% of his body weight. So if the idea that he's lost 2% means he's lost a 20% of his, his potential, imagine what it would be at 12%. I mean, yeah. and yet this is the person who's run faster than anyone ever had at that point. Right. So that, that kind of makes a, a bit of a mockery of that whole concept. It does. It really does. And it, you know, and yet this, the, these myths persist and it's, it's dangerous. I, I actually, while working on the book, spoke with several race directors at some major you know, marathon type races um, who've told me that they now train, you know, the people that are in the medical tents and, and first responders in their events, they are trained now to, you know, it used to be they would assume someone was dehydrated. It's really dangerous because the symptoms of hyponatremia are very similar to the symptoms of dehydration mm -hmm. and what they would do is they would give someone an IV and that you know could potentially kill them if they're already overhydrated and so now you know their sort of default is to assume that the person is is maybe has you know that those symptoms are more likely to be the result of hyponatremia than of dehydration and so you know they they have some ways of, of determining you know the difference between those uh, and even just the awareness of that helps so that I think yeah, uh, yeah that that's obviously that's often during an event rather than just the recovery after it as well. Yeah. So just going back to the recovery side of food and drink, are there any rules like the ratio of proteins to carbohydrates? You see that in various products or having to, to eat or drink within a window right after hard exercise to make a difference or uh, has that been shown to, to not make that much difference now? Yeah, uh, there used to be this idea of the recovery window, and this is still highly marketed. I mean, I don't think that the idea has gone away, even as the science has sort of overturned it. Um, it turned out that this idea that, you know, after exercise, there was this short window, sometimes it was said to be like 20, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, maybe up to an hour, depending on who you're talking to. But it turns out that this just isn't the case that you, you don't need to get some nutrition in, whether it's carbohydrates or a protein immediately, immediately following that workout, um, that your body will recover just fine if you wait an hour or two or till the next meal, whenever that may be. Um, yeah, the exception would be if if you are in an event where you are performing and then you're going to perform again. And in that case, you might need to, to eat something or take in some carbohydrates in particular. Um, but no, th this recovery window, it turns out, was just sort of a relic of the way the, the initial studies were done. So it was never sort of a real thing. It's actually uh, more important. So th there's, in particular, this is often said about protein, that you really need to get protein in right after your workout, it turns out that it's probably better to just get protein, you know, all throughout the day instead of in one giant dose right after you exercise. That's probably not particularly helpful. And so my advice here is just that, you know, eat a healthy diet, make sure that you're getting those nutrients that you need, but the timing of them is not so important. And the ratio in any particular meal is not going to be the thing that makes a big difference for you. I think everyone wants to be able to find those little edges here and there. And, and, and often we're chasing that extra half a percent when there's maybe yeah. things like getting more sleep. And we'll talk about that more in a minute, but um, that would make a 20% difference in how you perform. And so we, we often leave the big stuff on the table and we want to get these little extra minor things that may, may not even help, but uh, it feels right. good to be proactive about doing extra things. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, it really goes back to all this marketing is really playing on our fears. It's like, oh, I might be doing something wrong. And like, you know, eating can't just be simple. It needs to be really complicated. And you need, you know, you need to hire someone to help you or you need this, this special product that's been specially formulated for this situation. And, you know, it turns out that's not, it's not that important. I, you know, in the book, I talk about how Usain Bolt won all these gold medals while, you know, eating all his meals at the McDonald's in the Olympic Village, you know, is that a great diet? No, but you know, it's also not the thing that's going to make the difference between a gold medal or not. Exactly. And, and it's exactly the same as the uh, the cupping that yeah. maybe made those uh, swimmers marginally slower, but it wasn't enough to change the result. Right, right. Exactly. 
So what about supplements? This is exactly the same concept here. We're oh, overcomplicating things yeah. here. Yeah. I mean, supplements, you know, the marketing of supplements is basically just playing again on this fear that I might be missing something or, you know, uh, so many people fear that their diet is worse than it is or that there's some nutrient that they might be missing. And, you know, as long as you're eating, you know, a very diet, you know, with, with fruits and vegetables and, you know, all the normal stuff, the chances of you being nutrient deficient are almost nil. And in fact, for athletes, it's even much slimmer because if you're exercising a lot and training hard, you're, you're taking in more calories than the normal person. So you're actually getting more of those nutrients and things already, whatever it is you're eating, you're getting more. I mean, you certainly would never need something like vitamin C or, or some of these antioxidants that are that are marketed at, at athletes because you're getting those things in your food and it's probably better to get them from food anyway. But supplements are something that are actually dangerous to take, I think. Um, you know, the anti-doping agencies, actually, the one in the U.S. actually has a, a whole campaign to try and sort of dissuade athletes from taking supplements. And I say dissuade, but it, it's they have to sort of do a little dance because the problem here is that supplement makers are huge sponsors of sport. The reason that people think they need supplements for sport is that all of the supplement companies, you know, all almost every sport has some major supplement donor who's backing and paying for a lot of this stuff. And so on the one hand, you have the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency trying to tell athletes don't take supplements. On the other hand, you know, those Olymp some of these Olympic athletes are on teams that are sponsored by supplement makers. So they have to be really careful about the way that they're framing their advice. Uh, but the reason the anti-doping agencies care about this is we have multiple, multiple examples of athletes testing positive on doping tests because of something they inadvertently inadvertently ingested in a supplement. And you know, people have this idea that they can really ascertain what's in the supplements or know that a particular company is better than the other. And it may be true. I mean, I think it's certainly true that there are upstanding companies that are trying to do the right thing. And then there are ones that are more shady and that are, you know, we have lots of examples of undeclared pharmaceuticals turning up, particularly in exercise and fitness and performance supplements. So I would say those are ones to particularly stay away from. But, you know, most of these raw ingredients are being sourced from the same places. They're very often coming from factories overseas, and the company may not even know what they're getting. You know, there's, there's fraud, and some of this stuff, there have been multiple investigations looking at this, and the regulation of these things is just so paltry that I think, you know, it's it's not just not necessary for athletes to take supplements, but I think it's just, you know, you're, you're potentially subjecting yourself to harm. No, I completely agree. And, and I think part of this as well will be that you'll see elite athletes and whatever your chosen sport is um, being sponsored by um, some of these supplements and, and then making the connection of, well, I'm only this good because I have this supplement. Uh, and it's uh, an easy sell. And again, purely marketing, really, that that's yeah. the case. But that risk is is very real. And I was just reading the uh, the book, uh, Win at All Costs by Matt um, oh, yeah, Hart. And I, I think you, you're, uh, you did a review of it on the back, I believe. But, yeah, I did. Uh, just hearing all about Nike and Alberto Salazar and, and the uh, trying to get all these little marginal gains with legal and, and not so legal means with vitamins or, or yeah. shots and things like that. And I think all athletes, especially competitive athletes, are looking for all these little edges. And it's what I was just saying a minute ago that maybe we're chasing that last 0.1% that makes a difference between Olympic gold and Olympic silver, but we're a three-hour marathoner and there's a lot of yeah. other stuff that would make much more of a difference. That's right. That's right. I mean, marginal gains, that's just, I mean, it, that's not where you're going to make your big gains. You know, that you're leaving the big things on the table if you're chasing those things. And one thing I like to tell athletes is, you know, there's all these things to you with new little studies. So much of the research in exercise and sports science is, is not that rigorous. And it's not because the scientists are terrible. It's just that these are really difficult things to study. And it's really hard to do studies with the kinds of sample sizes that you need to really get good answers. And so, you know, you can go around and, and try to chase the latest new finding on some supplement or something. Most of those studies are probably just marketing exercises in the first place. Um, but most of them, even if, if they look or appear you know, good to begin with will not pan out. And in the end, it will turn out that they're not nearly as, as wonderful as they were first said to be. So do you want to be the person who's been running around chasing after these things that, you know, most of which will never end up being important? Or do you want to master the basics, the things that we really know do work? 
Definitely. No, I completely agree with that. And it's, again, that uh, what is the cost and what is the potential benefit? And I suppose if yeah. there's something that has a massive benefit, then um, it should be easier to prove scientifically. Plus, if it has a massive benefit and it's some kind of food or drink, uh, odds are it might be doping or right. it might, yeah, right. might, might get banned. I mean, <laughs> if it makes a big difference, yeah. then the uh, Olympic authorities, etc., will know about it yeah. and they will not allow it, basically. That's right. Yeah. So uh, one little caveat, of course, to supplements is if someone uh, has blood tests and their doctor saying they're iron deficient, or so, that that would be a place where uh, getting it in your diet and, and having supplements would help. But but generally right. speaking, you'd say they they there's more negatives attached to it than than positives. That's right, and I, I, you're very correct to point out, uh, particularly for menstruating women, you know, women of menstrual age, uh, iron supplements can be important. But it's also important that you actually get a blood test to verify this, particularly because some people have a condition where they're actually uh, holding on to iron and they can actually have uh, get too much iron in the blood so you don't want to just assume and um, you, know, you you want to be sure because otherwise you could you could end up overloading your body with iron and that can be dangerous too and I actually had that a couple of years ago that I had some blood tests and my iron levels were too high and that was yeah. gi giving me similar effects to having too low iron but if I'd have just randomly said, oh, I'll take some iron supplements. That's probably what it is. I'd have made it worse. That's so, right. So it's good just to make sure you get doctor's advice if there's something genuinely wrong, rather than if you're just feeling normal and you're trying to get that extra 1%, that's probably not going to be the way you're going to get it. That's right. Um, so one other thing I want to mention related to food and drink is just the, the concept of socializing. I mean, this last year has been a bit weird for that, obviously, oh, yeah. with coronavirus, but just socializing, having a beer, having a meal out with friends and how that can probably help recovery, just more from the psychological side of it. So even if it's not the healthiest food and drink, just being around people, lowering your stress levels, kind of like the uh, the float tank concept there, yeah. that it can be a good way to help recovery that way, maybe. Absolutely. And my friend, Steve Magnus, who I talk about in the book, he likes to call this social recovery. And I really like that term. And it's it's sort of just this unwinding and you know some sort of socializing. It, it's really a way of reducing stress, right? And unwinding and, and letting go of those stress stresses, anytime you can do that, it's absolutely beneficial. So going to kind of a more of a summary and starting to round up as we're, we're getting yep. to the end of an hour here, um, sleep we haven't mentioned yet. And uh, I want to leave that at the end because I think that's the one unambiguous thing that definitely does have a massive effect on recovery. So firstly, would you say that's the case that that's, you know, maybe people are chasing these marginal gains, but just get an extra 15 minutes a night would make more of a difference to recovery. And then secondary to that, if you're trying to monitor it in too much detail, do you think that could actually be counterproductive by stressing out and not getting sleep quickly enough because you're worried that you're not getting enough hours of sleep and suddenly you actually get lower quality sleep because of that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it is sleep is absolutely the most important thing you can do for recovery. Nothing else comes anywhere close. I mean, it's it's the most effective tool that we have for recovery, hands down. So if you're not getting good sleep, not getting enough sleep, you know, forget about anything else you're doing. Nothing else will make as much of a difference. Um, but you point out a really good thing, which is that, you know, you want to you want to prioritize sleep. You want to be sure to get enough, but you also don't want to obsess about it to the point where it's becoming its own source of stress. And so if you wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden now you're stressing, oh my gosh, my recovery is going to be gone to hell now. I'm, I'm really screwed. Like that's not good either. And so you need to, you know, what really matters is that you are sleeping consistently on a schedule. You're getting enough sleep. You're getting the, the sleep. Your body's getting the sleep that it needs on a regular basis. So one bad night of sleep is not going to be the thing that makes or breaks you. I think a lot of people the night before a race, um, that's not usually the night when they sleep the best. And that's okay. But you want to be sure that you've banked some really good sleep that week. So, you know, the two nights before the race, three nights, those nights you need to really make sure you're going to bed early or, or sleeping in as late as you need to get the sleep that you need. And I just want to point out really quickly, too, that it's it's not necessarily about getting up early or going to bed or not going to bed late. It's really about the hours that you're getting. And so, you know, paying attention to your own body's rhythms as well. So if, if you are someone who's a night owl, um, maybe that means that you need to figure out a way to arrange things to where you can sleep in in the morning if that's when you're getting you know, your best sleep. It can be hard, you know, trying to force yourself to go to bed before your body's early. And similarly, um, you know, if you're someone who wakes up really early, you need to be sure that you're going to bed in time so that by the time your body's naturally waking up, you've had those hours that you need. 
And people will either be a, a night owl or a morning lark or somewhere in between. Yeah. And, and most are somewhere in between. I know personally, I am a night owl. I am. Mm -hmm. I cannot get to sleep early and I do not like getting up before 9am, which is really annoying in a sport where almost every race starts at about 4 or 5am. But uh, it's yeah, knowing your body helps for, for being able to then plan your sleep better. It does. So would you say then a couple of big takeaways, if, if this is all people think about here is, Keep it simple with your recovery. Don't don't make it overly complex or believe too much hype about marketing and focus on sleep. Absolutely. Those are great rules. So in the conclusion to your book, uh, you mentioned that you kind of wish you trained maybe a little bit less and had a bit more of a focus on recovery because of illness and injury sometimes holding you back once you got into really good shape. So I'm sure a lot of people hearing this can relate to that and would rather be able to deal with things now rather than looking back on it many years from now and wishing they'd done it differently. So would you would you agree that that chasing that last percent of hard training and, and maybe making your recovery into an additional session every day and making it stressful almost that that could actually be getting in the way because then you're going to lose some consistency potentially because um, the training is unsustainable or the recovery is adding to that unsustainability by trying to do too many things. Oh, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And I'll just point out, I think we've all heard of overtraining syndrome, but yeah, you know, there's not really a such thing as undertraining syndrome. Like it's always better to recover and rest just a tiny bit more. You know, the the thing that you will lose by maybe not getting that last one percent of the training, once you go over the line, once you're you've moved into the overtraining zone, like that's just kicking you back to sort of square one. And it's really hard to recover from that. So so it's always better to err on the side of of you know under training rather than over training and over resting rather than under resting. I couldn't agree more. You certainly see, yeah. see a lot of people who will have a great race who maybe thought they weren't quite fit enough, but you don't really see that with people who are overtrained or a little bit injured. Uh, and also, it, you'll, you'll gain more, particularly when we're looking at ultra distances, which a lot of the listeners will be uh, thinking about more, then uh, execution and just not being tired going into the race will matter more. So recovery and not trying to do the absolute maximum you can. All other things being equal, more volume will make you fitter. But that's the problem there. All other things being equal, they, they probably yeah, won't be. That's right. Exactly. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Was there anything else you wanted to mention on this topic? I don't think so. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for your time and uh, uh, enjoy the rest of the week. Thanks. You too. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You can follow Christy on Twitter at, at @cragcrest. plus her website is linked in the show notes too, and she co-hosts the Emerging Form podcast about the creative process. And you can contact me, Ian Sharman, at sharmanultra.com, and also let me know if there are particular topics or guests you'd be interested in. Uh, rating and subscribing to the podcast is also really appreciated and will help us get found by more runners searching for this type of content. Plus, check out podiumrun.com for articles uh, for runners of all levels, including the occasional one by myself too. Um, thank you, everyone, and see you next month.